Hey everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast. Yours truly alongside Bonnie and Tim, and we're grateful um, to, to be a, a small part of your life today. Bonnie has set us up with something so juicy and so nourishing. So Bonnie um, <laughs> went out and, and found a rabbi that you know, we interviewed last episode and really profound and, and, you know, good, good, deep sort of spiritual stuff. And then um, she found, uh, not found, but um, we are fans of a, a Jewish scholar, a Dr. Amy Jill Levine. And um, got her and booked her on the podcast. And then um, I got to, alongside Tim, spend an hour with her in the most delightful manner possible. Um, in the that's most who... delightful way. <laughs> that's yes. Sorry. <laughs> she, and so, so this, I, I think, Tim, I think I would say this was one of our favorite interviews ever. I was uh, I was joking with Mike that every now and then you'll have a theologian or a professor or somebody like that on, and they and they're they're wonderfully intelligent, but they have like the personality of a peanut, and they come in there and say, "Well, um, in chapter yeah. two of the book that I wrote on this subject of predestination," <laughs> and, and you're just like, "Oh my goodness!" But she was like, from minute one, and you oh. guys will hear just absolutely wonderful and so fun. Yeah. And and she carries the whole thing. My, I, I I do a horrible job interviewing her because I, <laughs> she's so sharp and quick, and she just carries it carries the whole thing. So, um, anyway, thanks to Bonnie for for getting her on the show. It was absolutely amazing, and hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, we are so excited to have one of, um, I know for Bonnie, for me, one of our favorite scholars on the program today, coming at you live from Nashville, Tennessee, Dr. Amy Jill Levine. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're grateful for your time. Happy to be with you. Um, All good. And, and, and listen to this bio. All right, uh, just for our audience, just if you want to know what a real intellectual, what a real intellectual bio looks like, here it is. A university professor of New Testament and Jewish studies, Mary Jane Worthen, professor of Jewish studies, professor of New Testament studies, Divinity School and College of Arts and Science, Vanderbilt University. Bam. So well done. Um, yeah, it's what a was your business card, but it does sound kind of pretentious. I'm just a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know if, if you know if you ever need those credentials they're kind of fun to have on your email tagline so i mean <laughs> why not um and and aj has graciously given us permission to call her aj and so i have two books in my personal library that she has written that's, that's all you have you i know have i know i'm slacking books? i you know the the housing I mean, really. the book allowance has dried up you just copy off amazon or something you know. <laughs> but they're the physical they're physical um so one which i i've found unbelievably fascinating is the jewish annotated new testament mm -hmm. so it's it, it is annotated by all jewish scholars with some well, essays by me and mark Rettler, and everybody who's a contributor um is jewish 
Right. Which Not is... Messianic Jewish, but Jewish Jewish. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's very important to include. And then um, the book I've probably uh, leaned on a ton is a Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. So um, anyway, recommend those to you all. And uh, again, grateful to have this opportunity. AJ, where, if you don't mind me asking, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What were your parents like? Um, I grew up in North Dartmouth, Massachusetts, which is in between New Bedford and Fall River. Nice. Um, which I guess technically be pronounced New Bedford and Fall River. Um, so my accent is <laughs> uh, The neighborhood was predominantly Roman Catholic. Um, okay. So I grew up uh, with Catholic friends doing Catholic things. I met yeah. my first Protestant who registered to me as a Protestant when I went off to university. Um, oh. uh, I had fabulous parents. I had the best parents ever. Um, they encouraged me. My mom, um, who who was born in like 1913 or so, um, wow. it wanted to do graduate work. Uh, mm -hmm. But when she was ready for graduate work, that you know, it was in the height of the depression. And her family said to her, you have to come home and go to work because you have two brothers and we've got to get them through medical school. Hmm. Um, and the family had lost everything. So my mom, being being the good girl, mm. went home and went to work. Oh, and wow. my parents were married close to 20 years before I was born. I'm an only child. It was a very, very happy accident. Um, and my mother's sense was anything that this little girl wanted, as long as it had some sort of academic merit, she hmm. was going to make it happen. So oh, if I said something awesome. like, I want a pony, no way, but I want a book, <laughs> I want to see a museum, I want to see what, you know, Colonial Williamsburg is like. I remember that trip really well. You know, my mother said, yes, we will make that happen. Um, oh, so when I said awesome. I got interested in religion, um, she was able to facilitate my getting into churches and my going to catechism and whatnot. Wow. And my parents gave me this wonderful encouragement. If you're interested in something and it's a worthwhile thing to be interested in, let us try to help you, which is a model I try to use with my, my own kids and with my students. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and were they yeah. um, how orthodox, reform, conservative were your parents? I mean, what environment were you raised in? Yeah. Um, it, it, we went to a, cons a conservative at the time, conservadoc, so conservative synagogue that was more on more on the orthodox side. Uh, pretty full Hebrew liturgy. Um, little girls did did become bat mitzvah and have a ceremony, but it was a kind of stripped down Friday night, three at a time, as opposed to big Saturday, read the Torah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and when my father died, and I was still pretty young, I, I was mm. thirteen. Uh, my mother then sort of really gets religion as opposed to this is what you do because this is what you do. So she decides she has to go say the memorial prayer, the cottage prayer for my dad twice a day, and I have to go with her. Oh, um, wow. And like the second week in, um, I also had to go to school. Um, so we're waiting there early in the morning, and there are you know 12 women and eight guys or something, and we're waiting for the 10th man to show up because you have to have 10 men yeah, to make yeah. what's called a minion in order to say the memorial prayer. And I'm looking at my mom going, I have to get to school. I don't want to be late. And finally, my mother just looked up and said, well, this is ridiculous, and she started to pray. Come and on. all the other women joined her, and that's wow. how her synagogue became egalitarian. Um, wow. No way. So, like one of the, and at the time, I remember being really embarrassed by this. Right. Like, oh my God, mommy, what are you doing? But and you know, in retrospect, my gosh, how cool was that? Oh, that's amazing. So, like I said, I had fabulous. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, that's 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 very cool. And and were your parents at all? What was their posture towards all your Catholic friends? Were they um, was, were they, they were, wary? Were they encouraging? What were they like? Um, when I decided I wanted to go to catechism class, uh, so religious education class, and mm -hmm. we all went to public schools. So this is like after school stuff. Um, my mother said to me, in effect, as long as you remember who you are, you should go. You might learn something because mm -hmm. it's good to know about other people's religious traditions. Um, and she and my dad had enough confidence in me that I don't think they were worried about my being, you know, seduced in, into some other religious <laughs> tradition. I was really quite happy being Jewish. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, there was an enormous openness and there was a respect, but there was a, a respect for what we shared in common, but also a respect for those differences. That's and amazing. my Catholic friends never put any pressure on me. Mm. in terms of, you know, you, you need to believe this or you need to believe that. Mm -hmm. um, I was at one point accused of killing Jesus, which was sort of tra traumatic to me because, you know, basically oh, she said, Lord. this girl said to me on, on the bus, you killed our Lord. And I thought, you know, no, I didn't because you'd know. Um, oh, and then yeah. she said, <laughs> you know, our priest said so. So, I mean, mm. you, you get these kind of weird whatever. That's in part why I wanted to go to catechism class is because mm. I wanted to find out where this bizarre teaching came from. Got it. Yeah. Um, but after that, I mean, I never heard anything really awful uh, because I had great friends <laughs> and, yeah. the, you know, the nuns and the priests were fine. Um, and then as I started, as I became older and I started to, re and I finally sat down and read the New Testament and I began to learn about the history of anti-Semitism and um, issues of, of changes in the Catholic Church after Vatican II. And then I found out what Protestants were. I realized that the whole religious thing is a lot more complicated than I thought it was. Mm. You know, I thought it was like, you know, we do this and they do that and we can share certain things and we can't share other things. It's so much more complicated. It's also oh, so much true. more interesting. Yeah. What yeah. drew you to, what was your, what was the uh, focus of your dissertation? Oh, I wrote on the gospel of Matthew. Um, I originally wanted to write on women in the new Testament. Um, mm -hmm. And I was told, and this is in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, I was told by the faculty and there were no women faculty in New Testament proper. Oh. Um, you know, why do you need to write on women that's sort of faddish and it's not really important and you might want to write on theology and Paul? And I thought, you know, that's been done. Yeah. Um, so I wound up writing on this is weird comment in Matthew's mission discourse in chapter 10, where Jesus instructing his followers, here's how you run a mission, begins by saying, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he actually repeats that in chapter 15 mm -hmm. when he's talking to the Canaanite woman. He's like, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I thought, what a bizarre thing for him to say, because why would it occur to any Jew to go to the Gentile nations in the first place? And it's just weird. Yeah. Um, so I thought I would write on that. I wanted to, which I did, and it got published, and I wanted to call this Matthew in the missionary position, but but the good faculty is you know, slightly less provocative title. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 If women in the New Testament is too provocative, then I can imagine that one was completely yes, that out of bounds. Did and, and then when I finally got a job, I got a job, which was miraculous enough, um, and the, my good colleagues, and they were good colleagues, said to me, you know, you need to write for tenure. Um, you might want to write on something other than women because we're not sure we can find sufficient reviewers who would be happy with this, with your writing on women. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, at, this is in the, the mid 80s. So even then the stuff that I, some of the stuff that I was really interested in, I couldn't do. 
But I got tenure and then I started to write on women and sexuality and gender and all those iffy things that were dangerous back then. Right. Oh, totally. What what drew you to New Testament? What drew you to Matthew in particular or the character and person of Jesus? Yeah. Um, a, part of it was because when I was going to catechism, I liked the stories that I heard. Mm. Because the stories that I heard, I mean, that's what you do when you go to religious ed when you're a kid is you hear stories. Mm. Um, uh, they, they sounded like the stories that I was hearing in the synagogue. And I liked the stories I was hearing in the synagogue. And mm. my parents would tell me biblical stories. And my father knew some some midrashic mitzvah, some of the post-biblical stuff. He was like, oh, let me tell you about Abraham when he was a kid. And here's some more stuff about Joseph. And he really was kind of a twit. Um, and, you know, and, and here's some other stuff about Moses that you didn't know. You know, all this wonderful stuff. So stories beget stories. Right. So the stories I heard in, in catechism class were Jewish stories. Um, mm, because right. they're modeled after what the church calls the Old Testament. I mean, that's their template. So if you look at Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he's, he's running Moses in, in you know, chapters 2 through 5. Um, you have a, a baby who, who escapes when kids all around him die, and then you have a, some Egypt connections, and then you have a water thing, which is the baptism, but it's also the Red Sea. And then you have 40 days in the wilderness, which is like 40 years in the wilderness. Ooh. Then he goes up on a mountain. You know, nothing new there. So what I'm looking at is a cycled plot line. Right. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So I got more and more interested in that. And in some cases, Matthew clearly knows some of the post-biblical stuff. And I said, wow, Matthew knows post-biblical Jewish stuff. That's really interesting. Mm. So I think about how do you repackage your stories, particularly if you've got a Gentile audience as well as a Jewish audience, a pagan audience. Um, and I like narrative. So I got really attracted to this. I got really interested in Jesus. Thinking about him, as, you know, when I first read the New Testament, I go, oh, the guy's Jewish, right? So he's a Jew talking to Jews. Yep. And and that was like this revelation to me. I was like, wow, yeah. Jews. Um, I thought these are these are Jewish stories, but they're not stories I'm hearing in the synagogue. Mm. So what in my own history do I need to fill in? Um, and the New Testament fills in a lot of Jewish history. And mm. um, the first person in literature ever called rabbi is Jesus of Nazareth. The only Pharisee from whom we have written records is Paul of Tarsus. Wow, this is all Jewish history. I can fill in gaps. Um, there are stories about women, which I was really interested in. Um, I like parables because I like, you know, not only do I have the gospel as story, I have the gospel, the, the main character in the gospel telling me more stories. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it seemed like an interesting thing to do. And I figured if, if I got a PhD in New Testament, somebody let me into a PhD program, hallelujah. And then... <laughs> I, get, I think if I can't get a job, because who's going to hire a Jew to teach New Testament, right? That was already oh, kind of it. weird. Um, I, you know, like the, the, the fallback was I would go to law school, because <laughs> my mother said, you've got a brain and a mouth, you might as well use it. Uh, and I said, well, I think I want a PhD in New Testament. And then she said to me, does that mean you have to be celibate? And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's part of it. And she was okay, then, you know, go, go see if it works. Yeah. Oh, I love <laughs> it. What? So, so, and these are questions uh, that I'm just dying to get your um, take on, but, but they're not setups in any way, shape or form. But I, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about is I've been to Israel is I love reading a lot of Jewish material, history, spirituality. Um, I'm, I'm very much interested in um, how you would uh, address Christians 
Um, if you could just, if you, if you were just very sincerely asked, okay, what do you, what, what are a couple of things Christians miss about Jesus? Um, you know, based on what you've kind of seen, you know what I mean? I mean, and I'm trying to phrase this in a way that isn't a setup, but I'm genuinely curious is because, because I would answer that by, well, obviously he was Jewish, right? Most Christians don't realize he was Jewish. If it were a setup, how would you phrase it? How would I phrase it? If it were a setup. Oh, if it were a setup, I would say, AJ. Yes, Michael. <laughs> As someone destined to burn in the flames, what would you say? No, no. I mean, I would, I would, because um, I've heard you joke about that. Um, I, I, if I, if it were a setup, I don't even know. I would never try to do that. What? I'm, I'm just, I'm totally interested because you, you have in the annotated NT. Uh, mm -hmm. The Jewish annotated NT, you have essays at the back, and the one that you wrote, you know, flattery will get me everywhere, hopefully, but the one you wrote was by far the best of the ones in the back of the, of, uh, the Bible. But it was on, uh, let me find it exactly, common errors made about early Judaism. And right. I thought in that other was... words, stupid things that people say. Yes. All right, so give me <laughs> yeah. stupid things that people say. Uh, I love all the subtitles. Yeah, well, it's it's how I think about it in, in terms of it's like I like I can't believe you just said that. Um, and yep. our term papers for my New Testament intro were are due on Monday, and people are still sending me drafts. And I'm looking, you know, have you not paid attention during the whole semester? Yeah. Okay, so let's um, do so. Let's do let's do two questions. What are stupid people, mm -hmm. or what what are things not stupid people? What are uh, stupid things that people say about early Judaism? And then what are stupid things that people say yeah. about Jesus? How about that? And they go together. Because if you get Judaism wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong. Right? Because if you, get, mm. if you get the context wrong, you get him wrong. Right? <laughs> um, so uh, they, they think that Jews are um, obsessed with following the law. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if, they, if they violate any one of the 613 commandments, they will burn in hell, which makes them all either sanctimonious or neurotic. Um, and then mm. Jesus comes along and says, in effect, don't worry, be happy. Um, uh, he sings a little bit of the be happy song. Um, and, and then he <laughs> says, you know, just love God and love neighbor and everything else will take care of itself, right. um, which is totally wrong on both sides. Um, Jews are not running around, um, you know, except for a couple, of course, um, who, who are feeling sanctimonious or neurotic uh, because the following Torah is, is part of what you do. Um, they're no more sanctimonious and neurotic than, say, um, American citizens are about following American law. I mean, because you do it, it's part of your custom. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes when you do it, you feel really good about it. Um, uh, so when you celebrate the Sabbath, that's a time to turn the computer off um, and sit down with the family and have a nice glass of wine and, and, and unwind. So they're, they're not all squirrely mm. about all this stuff. <laughs> Jesus actually makes the law more... Um, uh, more rigorous mm -hmm. rather than less. I mean, the law says don't murder. He says don't be angry. That's right. harder. Right. Yep. right? Uh, yep. The law says don't commit adultery. He says don't even think about it. That's harder. Yeah. Right. Um, the I've law had, says. I, I've had I've had people say that the point of Jesus's teaching there is just to make us realize we need a savior. And, oh, I and, don't think so. You mean like right. the Sermon on the Mount is just designed to tell us how how totally flawed and broken and yes. terrible we are, yes. and that we can't do anything. Correct. Yeah, it's a really negative anthropology. But Jews, as far as we can tell from antiquity, didn't run around thinking with a really negative anthropology. We didn't walk around going, 
boy, we're really terrible creatures in a terrible world and everything is screwed. You know, how could God put us in this position? Because if you're in that position, the God that you're worshiping has basically damned you from the time of Adam and Eve on, um, which is not a terribly, you know, warm and fuzzy image of God either. We are, to the contrary, as the Psalms put it, a little bit lower than the angels. We are made in the image and likeness of God, and we are fabulous creatures. Um, we are not perfect. That's 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 God's job, um, and we we are therefore fallible. And because we're fallible, we have the Torah as a guide uh, to help us get back on track. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what the Torah does um, is it allows us to celebrate our own identity as Jews in a Roman Empire that's really interested in homogeneity. Mm-hmm. So we might think of following the Torah as, as an ancient version of what today we would call multiculturalism. Hmm. Uh, following the Torah, let Jews remain Jews, um, as opposed to being assimilated into that broader imperial structure when all these other nations disappeared. Right. So Torah is why we're still here. Yeah. Hmm. How do how we do debate you... it? Of course we debate it. We're Jews. <laughs> <laughs> how how do you hear Paul? So how, how so I know you know the very Protestant Reformed way of hearing Paul's discussion of the law. Mm-hmm. How do you hear it? Oh, uh, Paul, Paul says the law is holy and just and good. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul's following Torah. Paul's using Torah as well as prophets as well as the Psalms in order to make his case. His problem, however, is what's Paul's problem? Paul's problem is not Judaism or being mm-hmm. Jewish. Paul boasts in being Jewish. Um, when he gets around to that, like, you know, tribe of Abraham and as to a law of Pharisee, I mean, he thinks that's all great, because if it weren't great, he wouldn't bother to trot it out in the first place. Um, his problem is that he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to pagans. Um, and the pagans are trying to figure out, what does it mean to be in this new movement? Uh, they also, or at least some of them, have a copy of the Septuagint. So they've got mm-hmm. their own Greek Bible, because that's the only right. Bible that's there. There's no Matthew to hand him, right? Or, right, you know, Romans right. hasn't been written yet. Yeah. So Paul's trying to explain to these Gentiles who have a copy of the Old Testament, which is not then called the Old Testament, um, that what they're supposed to do is just believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, um, turn away from their idols, right? So you can't, you can't be, you're sort of like, as Paula Fredrickson puts it, you're ex-pagan pagans. But you're not supposed to convert to Judaism, because if you convert to Judaism, then the only people who are worshiping God are Jews. But one of the signs of the Messianic age, and this is really clear in Isaiah, Mm. um, you get it also in Zechariah, is that the Gentile nations, the pagans, turn to worship the God of Israel. Um, Zechariah, who's who's a kind of underrated prophet, he gets a little (laughs) weird toward the end in 914, but he's kind of an underrated prophet. Zechariah talks about the day when, when 10 Gentiles, 10 pagans, grab hold of the Jew and say, take me with you to Zion, right? Mm-hmm. So we can go worship your God, which is great. But they don't say, you know, circumcise us when we get there. Um, so the idea is that they come in as ex-pagan pagans, except these Gentiles now want to do things like practice circumcision. Mm-hmm. And Paul has to say, no, because if you do that, that's the wrong category for you. You're supposed to remain Gentiles. So when Paul is, sounds like he's speaking negatively about the law, what he's right. doing is he's speaking negatively about Gentiles following the law, not about Jews following the law. Hmm. He expects Jews to follow the law. Mm-hmm. So that bit in Romans 7 about, you know, I know what I should do, and how, yeah, how do you— well, part how, of the problem, who's the I, right? Right, it's, exactly, it's called, exactly. It's Paul speaking as Adam. Right. That would make some sense. 
Is Paul speaking as himself? Is he using the voice of a Gentile Christian, or Christian would be an anachronistic term? Is he is he using the voice of a Gentile Jesus worshiper? Is he using the voice of the Gentile Jesus worshiper who's not yet figured out what justification means? So the whole I thing in Romans 7 is a big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the annotations in the Jewish annotated New Testament. Which I happen uh, to have. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but I have it. It's, it's a worthwhile <laughs> book. And I certainly hope you have the second edition, which came out in 2017, because I think I saw your cover, which looks like the 2011 edition. Yes, good, fine. Um, get the get the new edition, if, if, you, if you can. All right, and done. What Mark Nanos, who's our annotator there, uh, what Mark Nanos does is he gives a very, um, I think, clear um, explanation of how to read some of those more problematic passages in Paul. Um, and in the second edition, Paula Fredrickson gives a very nice essay about what's Paul's problem and how we, how mm. we in Pauline studies, this is the academy, we went from the Paul over against the law, mm-hmm. uh, bad law, good Paul, to Paul as the, oh, the problem is Jews is boasting in Jewish ethnocentricity. The problem is still Judaism. That's the new perspective. But it's not this problematic law thing. To a new study of Paul, which is co- sometimes called the Paul within Judaism model, mm-hmm. which begins by saying, what happens if you take seriously Paul's, Paul's own self-identification as a Jew? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if you read Paul as a Lutheran, which is what your original model suggested, Right. Um, then you're going to get a Lutheran Paul, but yeah. you're not going to get a first century Jewish one. Yeah. So just as if you get Jesus context wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong. Well if done. That's where I was going next. Nice. All wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What, what else? Um, so, so to understand that Jewishness of Jesus is absolutely central yeah. for, for Christians. And a lot of errors come from not doing that. Um, what yep. other, what, you know, I've read um, early Judaism was oppressive to women. Um, that's something you go after yes. in your essay. Can you talk a little bit about that? I do. I do. So the stereotype is that early Judaism repressed and suppressed and oppressed and consequently depressed, all those press languages, uh, <laughs> women. And then Jesus comes along and invents feminism. Uh, right, the, right, right, right. And the pantsuit. Um, the, the stereotype that, it can be uniform. Um, you know, the stereotype that Jewish men were not allowed to talk to women. So anytime Jesus talked to a woman, he was violating tradition. Um, that Jesus violated the law by touching women, right? And, and, and all sorts of nonsense is backed up by nothing. Um, occasionally you'll see in some of these comments a reference to um, an, a rabbinic comment from you know 250 years later. Right. Um, that's one comment that ignores what comes immediately before and immediately after. So you, you know you pick and choose something that works. You is yank the, it out of its own the, literary and historical God. context. Is that the thank you God? I'm not a yeah. The Shilohasan prayer, yeah. thanking God that, that you've not made me you know a woman, a slave, or a gentile. Right. Um, and the women's version of that prayer is thank you God that you've made me the way I am. Um, which, as far as we know, was not recited at the time of Jesus. But if it were, there's no reason to presume that Jesus didn't recite it either, because gosh darn, there are only 12 men in his group. Hello. <laughs> um, so, you know, does he invent feminism? No, he's an androcentric first century Jew. But it, does he do anything different regarding women? No. Um, he mm. heals women. That would be expected. You know, women get sick, so they need healers. Um, and he teaches women, and that would be expected too. I mean, if you've got you've got a tradition that has a book named Esther and a book named Judith and a book named Ruth, you figure women are important, right? Um, uh, he um, 
he has women in his entourage. So did mm -hmm. the Pharisees. They had mm -hmm. women patrons. Of course, there's nothing. There's nothing mm -hmm. weird there. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what's the model here? The idea is you make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good. Hmm. Um, and that makes women feel better, right? Because then it's like Jesus is speaking directly to them. But the only way hmm. you get that message is to create a bad Judaism, as opposed to say, Jesus talked to women. Um, and then let's look at the women in the New Testament. So what do they do? They own their own homes, like mm -hmm. Martha, who welcomed Jesus into his home, yep, or yep, uh, Mary, yep. the mother of John Mark, who's running this, this kind of house group yep. um, in Jerusalem. And, and, and it's a high rent district. She's got a gate and a slave and all that. They have freedom of travel, which is why they can travel with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, or the story about Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth in mm -hmm, the beginning. Mm -hmm. So they can travel. They have access to their own money. Um, Luke mm -hmm. describes Jesus as having women patrons. Yeah, Joanna. Um, is it Joanna? The, right. The woman who anoints him is anointing him, whether it's on his head in Matthew and Mark or on his feet in Luke, or whether it's Mary, the sister of Martha and John. It's the same. It's like the Mr. Potato Head. It's the same story with different accoutrements. <laughs> but it's her ointment, right? Mm -hmm. Um uh, the woman who spent all her money on physicians spent her money on physicians. Um, they appear in public and nobody goes, oh my God, it's a woman in public, right? It's, it's perfectly normal. Mm. So if we start, if we, they're in synagogues, like the bent over lady, they're in the mm -hmm. temple, like they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. They're not being oppressed and repressed by their system. So what are they getting from Jesus? You know, why are people following him? Women are following him for the same reason that their, their sons and their fathers and their brothers are following him because they found his preaching of the kingdom of heaven compelling. Mm. Luke suggested they're following him because he healed their bodies. That would be a good reason. Uh, <laughs> you know, because for Luke, it's, it's kind of a, a, a patron client thing. Um, yeah. You know, why does anybody follow? Because you're, you do it, but not because there's something wrong with your system, right? You follow him because he's giving you perhaps a, a meaning in life that you didn't have before. Perhaps a hope of a new future, perhaps, um, uh, through him that the messianic age is about to break in and whatever is bothering you on earth will no longer bother you, which is why people mm -hmm. follow charismatic leaders. Mm -hmm. um, this all makes sense to me, but I don't have to construct a negative Judaism in order to do it. So what I generally tell Christians who provide this, like let's get a negative Judaism over against we get Jesus looking good, is if you have to make Jesus look good by making Judaism look bad, you, you've got a pretty bad Christology. Mm. You've got nothing there that's compelling. Right. All you're doing is you're inventing something bad in order to make your guy look good. I think Jesus looks good on. I think Jesus looks good on his own. I think he's really interesting. I think he's fascinating. I think he's a brilliant teacher. I think he was a healer. I'm pretty sure he was an exorcist. Um, mm -hmm. There are plenty of reasons to follow him without making his his cultural context look awful. Well, and then you have him reinforcing uh, Judaism by talk the way he talks about the law in Matthew five. Um, the fact that his parents were devout, um, you know, in their offerings when he was what, eight days old or whatever. So, so yeah. I see, how do you, how do you understand, and this is a total geek question, but how do you understand the, um, you've heard it said, but I tell you in, in, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, do you it's understand that? Right. Yes. Now, so is that typical rabbinical teaching? Cause the, one of the things that Matthew and others say is that he teaches as one who has authority. What, what does that comment mean? Yeah. Well, the teaching of authorities at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is the reaction to the crowds. Uh, but you have to put in the next line, he teaches with authority, not like the scribes. Um, mm. So what the scribes would do is they, ref they would refer to earlier tradition. Like, how do you know this? Because I got it from my teacher or I got it from, uh, from my particular form of exegetical inquiry and I can show you step by step how I got it. 
um, he just gets up and says something, right? Um, <laughs> right. I tell you. Right. So it's like it's the professor saying, hey, listen to me. I know this stuff as opposed to um, here are the 10 steps that got me from point A to my, you know, to, my, to, to proving my thesis. Um, yeah. When you when you have that, you have heard it said um, it's traditionally called the antithesis. Yeah. So an antithesis is an opposite, right? And, it, and it, so, But they're not antitheses because they're not opposites. They're extensions. So when Jesus mm -hmm. says, you have heard it said, do not murder, an antithesis would be, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, lock and load. That's an antithesis, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> but he says, you have heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't be angry with a brother, parentheses. So or, he's amplifying. Yeah. So he's extending... Or he's doing what in rabbinic Judaism, and this is from a text called Perkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers. It's a tractate in the Mishnah. Um, he's building a fence about the law. So what do you do? You have a law. You make another law to make sure you don't violate the first one. right? So you build a fence to protect the law, and you get this kind of buffer zone. How do you buffer mm -hmm. don't murder? Don't be angry, because if you're not angry, you're less likely to murder. How do you buffer or build a fence around don't commit adultery? Don't lust. And if you don't <laughs> lust with the intent to commit adultery, you're less likely to do it. So mm. he's using actually what is a very good rabbinic argument by building a fence about the law. If we had called these things extensions rather than antitheses, it would be much clearer. Mm. And remember, mm. as you pointed out, this is right after he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. As if some people are thinking that, boy, are they wrong. Mm-hmm. What do, what do those words abolish and fulfill mean there? I've heard several different takes on them. Um, how do you see them? I, the, I, I understand that those were common rabbinic words. Is that true? Not terribly. Um, okay. But um, abolish means to do away with. And, and, and that's pretty clear. Um, and that's the reputation that Paul had, right? And you can see that in Acts, that some people think Paul is teaching people not to obey the law. Um, and it's likely by the time Matthew was writing that people are saying, gee, if Paul's saying that, and they're getting Paul wrong, um, then maybe mm -hmm. Jesus was saying that too, and Jesus would be what we call antinomian over against the law. So mm -hmm. Matthew has to front load um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, the whole thing is based in Torah and prophets. I'm not ditching scripture. Um, I'm embedding myself in it. And then I, as a Jew, because this is what Jews do, say, here's my take, because we debate the law. We, I mean, we still <laughs> Um, to fulfill it means to bring it to its fullest meaning. And I think he does that very well because he's getting to um, not only what the law says, but what the law intends, right? So he's going from action mm -hmm. to uh, intention in Judaism. This would be kavanah, right? So what's in your heart? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He's really annoyed by hypocrisy. So if you do one thing, but you're thinking something else, he wants that integrated individual so that your heart and your actions are all in line, and they're in line with what Torah wants. Right? That's fine. That's mm. that's what fulfilling means. Um, and abolishing mm. means chuck the Torah. Don't have to bother with it anymore. And that Got would be it. just bizarre. Um, mm -hmm. when, remember, and the, so the hemorrhaging lady, right? The bleeding lady. Yep. I like. I wish I had yep. a name for her it's because you don't want to call it like bleeding lady, um, or no longer <laughs> bleeding lady, which I guess is what she is now. Um, when she reaches Matthew, she wanted to touch the fringe of his garment, right? Right. Um, so he's wearing fringes. Um, when mm -hmm. he complains about the Pharisees who make their fringes broad and long, you can pretty much figure that his were kind of short and stubby. Um, the very fact that he's wearing them means that he's halakhically, legally obedient. He's following Torah. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting Torah. And he's mm -hmm. living Torah. It's not like he's going out and eating a ham sandwich. The closest he comes to pigs are the ones that go over the cliff. Um, so, <laughs> you know, he's following Torah. 
And his followers, after he dies, his followers are still practicing Judaism, which is why they're going to the temple and why Acts mm -hmm. has Paul showing, has Paul in the temple and Peter and John in the temple. They're Jews and they're doing Jewish things. And to do Jewish things mm -hmm. means to follow Torah as you understand it. But here's this other thing that, that sometimes Christians get wrong. So the idea is you can look at Leviticus, and if you look at Leviticus, you know what first century Jews are doing, or you know what 21st century Jews are doing. I still have students mm -hmm. who think that on Passover, which, which actually started last night, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that we're still sacrificing lambs and you know, putting blood on the, you know, the door, right? it's warding away coronavirus or something. It's like, no, but that was a one-off. Um, you know, how are you celebrating um, how are you celebrating animal sacrifice? Gosh, we haven't done that since the temple got burned down. Right. So laws always need to be interpreted. So which means you can't mm -hmm. look at Leviticus or Deuteronomy and say that's what Jews in the first century were doing or Jews in the 21st century. It always has to be interpreted. Mm. Mm. You know, think about uh, the Constitution, right? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. How do you see Jewish spirituality different from the kind of Christian spirituality that you see uh, among evangelicals? What do you instance? mean by spirituality? Um, uh, the view of the spiritual life. So, so here's here's an example. Um, I I have been around um, enough uh, Jewish friends who have a very down to earth here and now spirituality. Whereas Christians, if they're not careful, can very much have a there and then, you know, afterlife focused sort of spirituality, you know, that kind of that kind of difference. Okay, well, if, if we're talking about focus on heaven as opposed to focus in the here and now, um, Jews who are just as diverse as Christians are, I mean, there's no there's no one Jewish way of doing anything other than arguing with other Jews. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's going to happen. Um, uh, <laughs> The more in the church, I mean, this is this is history. The more the church, toward the end of the New Testament and moving on, started to talk about heaven and hell, and salvation and the world to come, uh, mm. the more the rabbinic tradition started to talk not about salvation but about sanctification, about life in the here and now. Mm. Um, so Judaism does not have such a robust sense of the afterlife that Christianity does. I mean, it's there. But it's not what's emphasized. What's emphasized is what you do now. And God tends mm -hmm. to take care of the rest. Mm. Um, which means we're also not operating under a threat of damnation regarding heaven and hell. Um, you follow Torah because that's what God wants you to do. You don't follow Torah uh, in order to earn a reward. Um, Jews, Remarkably, Christians think Jews engage in what's called works righteousness. Jews have never heard of works mm -hmm. righteousness. Um, mm. So in that sense, we're down to earth. But um, in terms of spirituality in the mystical sense, I mean, there's a very strong, um, particularly in, in the medieval period, a very strong sense of Jewish mysticism. Um, mm -hmm. And contemporary Jews in some cases have borrowed, as have Christians, um, uh, other traditions, whether it's meditation coming from some of the Eastern traditions uh, or various forms of detachment from Buddhism. So Jews are pretty, we're pretty much open. You know, if this works, yeah, we might use it. Uh, but we also have a very strong <laughs> internal mystical tradition. Um, however, Judaism, and this is going back to rabbinic Judaism, and even in the middle medieval period, warns, if you get too heavy into mysticism, that's very self-centered, right? It's mm. you. And that mm. type of spirituality can take you out of the world. And Judaism is very, mm. very communal. So if mm. everything is focused on you, and mysticism can do that, and spirituality can do that, 
you're actually losing that communal touch. So there are warnings against don't go too far into that because if you lose the community, you're actually going to wind up losing yourself. Mm. When Jesus warns against Gehenna, yep. what is, is, that, is there anything to that? And, and what I'm asking is, um, yes, it, it, it seems like that was the valley of, uh, valley of outside valley, of, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, the garbage pit. Was there any, is it anything more than that? How was Jesus using that language, right? Because Christians obviously go there and think, well, there you go. It's everlasting destruction uh-huh. or thrown into outer darkness. How do you understand Jesus's words there? Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of thrown into the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Or you throw right, into right, the fire. right. Um, it seems to me that if you're thrown into a fire, you don't burn forever. You just burn up, gone. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm not seeing a huge amount of uh, eternal torture. Um, I think it's more oblivion. Um, and that's, mm. that's a sense that you also get from the book of Daniel, where the righteous shine like the stars um, and the dead to everla- the, the wicked to everlasting shame. Everlasting mm. shame is like, oh, um, Hitler, you know, everlasting shame, quizzling. Oh, got it, got it. Your name is tarnished forever. Yeah, Caligula. Um, yeah, whatever. yeah. You know, try, yeah. try and find somebody who's more or less contemporary. Um, <laughs> Judas is scary. Um, um, so I'm not seeing a huge stress on that. But yes, there is a sense of it, there is a sense of eternal reward, um, and that's where you get stuff like "Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust can get them, but lay up mm-hmm. treasures in heaven." As if there's really a heavenly bank account, and if right. then you draw down against the account, um, and you want to keep that account full. Right, because you right. want to be in in a you know a, a right relationship with God. You don't want to be in arrears, um, and you do that by by um, giving to charity. You do it by following mm-hmm. Torah. You do it by being you know loving your neighbor, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is a little bit of that eschatological threat there, but I don't think that's mm-hmm. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right, um, I, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time doing eschatological threat. He does spend a whole lot of time talking about ethics. Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, here's what you should do rather than this is what's going to happen to you if you don't. He has these discourses, though, you know, I, well, as you know, I mean, I feel dumb. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, let me, I, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus seems to talk about the future in Matthew and Luke. Um, in Mark, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, exactly. So, so uh, uh, my understanding is that those are uh, discourses about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Is that how you see them? Yeah. What are you in Jerusalem? <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like it's something bad going to happen to Jerusalem. Um, I, I, you know, did Jesus condemn the city? He might have. He sounds very, very much like Jeremiah um, with mm. concern about Jerusalem and concern about the temple. And he's channeling Jeremiah. Um, that's where he gets um, some of the, the synoptic, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke temple cleansing. Um, yeah. In terms of saying about the temple, you've turned it into a cave of robbers. That's, that's directly out of Jeremiah. Um, so does he think something's right. going to go wrong with the city unless the city repents? Of course, he wasn't the only one. Um, so Jeremiah thought that before the Babylonians attack. Um, Jesus mm. is, I, I think his, his, the concern is less Jerusalem than it is the temple. Because mm. um, his, his followers are still living in Jerusalem, right? That's, that's where right, the, the fig tree. So it's the fig tree. Yeah, it's it, 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 a reference to the Mark, temple, not right. to the... In Mark, it's a right. reference to the fig tree. Matthew collapses that. You see the tree, right. you curse it, you go into the city, you come out, and Peter goes, oh, look, you know, dead tree. Um, <laughs> in Matthew, it's he curses the tree, and Peter goes, oh, look, dead tree. So, so Matthew, <laughs> Matthew misses that intercalation. 
the better yeah. miracle, but he kind of misses the symbolism. Um, I don't know how much of this is Jesus and how much of this is Mark and Matthew, but I, I think Jesus was worried about the temple. I think he didn't think it was um, the people. I don't think he thought that all the people were worshiping there as they should have been worshiping, right? So what happens when your religion goes on automatic, which is what Jeremiah is talking about. Um, as Jeremiah says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you've made it a den of robbers. Um, a den of robbers is not a place where robbers are exploited. So here's another misconception. The temple is not overcharging. Uh, the temple is not exploiting the poor. Um, the temple does have certain um, boundaries that you have to be in a particular category in order to get across. Like the Gentiles can only go in so far. Um, right. All religions have that. Um, in a number of churches, the only people who can come to the altar to participate in communion are people who are baptized in that church. That doesn't mean the church is being unwelcoming. It just says there is certain privilege for people who are members of this community, and in other cases, there are not. Um, you know, like um, in the United States, citizens can vote, Canadians can't. It doesn't mean we're anti-Canadian. It just means you have certain internal privilege. We are, right. though. I mean, we are. Let's just name it right now. We are. Um, yeah, <laughs> there are boundaries, and all groups. I think. Yeah. I think, in fact, all groups need to have boundaries because you need to know who's an insider and who's an outsider. Uh, because all groups extend certain privileges and also certain responsibilities to mm. the insider. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. This is why Canadians are such a good example because they're less controversial. Um, <laughs> the, um, I think he yeah. was concerned, as Jeremiah was, that people were just going. They were doing their sacrifices, and they were thinking like everything right. is okay. Uh, but they yeah. weren't sincerely repenting in their hearts. So mm. when and, and it's not clear exactly what he was doing with that whole temple incident. And it strains my imagination to think that he did it twice. You know, once at the beginning mm. of his ministry in, in John two, and then later in the synoptics. Right. And then and and if, and if he says what he says in John, and he says what he says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's getting very chatty, and that doesn't really make sense either. Um, so it's not exactly clear what happened. Um, mm. And I don't think it was such a big mess because if it were, they would have arrested him on the spot. And they, mm -hmm. right, you know, why would they let him come in and teach the next couple of days? The whole thing's just weird. Um, it would mm -hmm. be like um, going into a church on Sunday morning and there's a collection plate that's passed. That floors Jews, by the way. The very mm -hmm. idea that somebody would handle money on their Sabbath is just bizarre to us. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we can get you six other days. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> donations are for. Um, it would be like the, the, the plate gets passed and somebody puts like $50 in the plate. They, I'm so straight with God, right? You know, I, I, right. I've done due diligence. <laughs> I've laid up treasure in heaven. You know, and then, and then you leave the church and you go out and you pra you're a pimp and a loan shark. Um, that's making the church a den of thieves because it's making the church a place where thieves feel safe. Yeah. Uh -huh. Preach. That's it. Yeah. But come on I think, but so what happens um christians come in and they say oh the temple was exploiting the poor well if it was how did mary and joseph do those early sacrifices that you just mentioned you know back at the beginning mm -hmm. of the gospel and why is it that a widow who puts her two coins in the treasury and jesus goes look at the widow um if he thought she was being exploited his job would have been to say hey lady save your money you know and go go to the treasury and take some money out of it he doesn't do that he just says look at her right mm -hmm. um and which means we have to interpret it as we would but I don't think he's condemning the system for that. If he thought the mm. temple was so awful, it makes no sense that his followers continued to worship there. It makes mm. no sense that he calls it my father's house. How do you see, um, so we're obviously Passover season for Christians Holy Week. How do you see those events um, as you as you read them? Obviously there, there are some anti-Semitic 
that have passages that have been used that direction. Um, but how else do you see the the atonement and the emphasis on uh, his kind of ransoming death and all of that? As you observe sort of Christians going about the you know Good Friday, Easter Sunday sort of thing, what what do you what do you notice about that? Yeah. Well, mostly what I notice is people don't think anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic thoughts. I, mm. I don't think they come in as bigots, and most of them probably don't come out as bigots. Um, some of that mm. stuff may get absorbed in a, in a kind of passive model that could manifest later. I think they come in with a sense of true and deep spirituality, um, that mm. Jesus gave up his life for them, um, and that shows the abundant love of God. I, I mean, I think that's what most people think. Um, I don't want to attribute negative thoughts to them. Um, in terms of the ransom model, I mean, you get that in Matthew and Mark. It drops out in Luke and John. Um, there, there's a wonderful book on that. It was a dissertation originally, I think, from Duke by a fellow named Nathan Eubank, um, who mm -hmm. talks about how this ransom theory works. And that's actually part of the um, that laying up treasure in heaven. If, if, you, if you've mm -hmm. drawn to, to, if humanity from the time of Adam and Eve has simply drawn mm -hmm. down the accounts so much that you have mm -hmm. no balance whatsoever. Um, to use financial language, what Jesus does in ransoming humanity is is restore the balance. Hmm. It's kind of a reset. Uh, that makes hmm. sense in a first century context. Um, hmm. In a first century context, the word for debt is the same word for sin. Mm -hmm. So you have this economic model, and that works, and that's, that also helps you give to charity because giving to charity is not only undoing sin, it's also undoing debt. Um, hmm. This all makes sense in a first century context. The big problem that a number of Christians have is um, the crucifixion and the idea of blood atonement doesn't make any sense because we don't live in a sacrificial culture. Mm -hmm. So when you read something like the epistle to the Hebrews that says there's no forgiveness without blood, I mean, Jews don't think that. Um, mm -hmm. If you go back to Deuteronomy, it's abundantly clear Jews don't think that. And, and in fact, we never did. Um, mm -hmm. And you can look at rabbinic literature that's not all, that's written after the destruction of the temple when there is no more animal sacrifices, there's no more blood functioning as a detergent to clean you from sin. Sin is a stain and blood washes off the stain. Yeah, the rabbis yeah. Aren't, aren't, aren't all worried about that because even from Deuteronomy, they say, what, what gets you out of sin? Repentance. Hmm. Um, what I would like to see more during Holy Week um, is a sense of repentance um, hmm. to go along with the, here's the gift that Jesus gave in order to redeem humanity from sin and death. What's the response? Hmm. And the response has to be more than look at divine love, and I am so grateful for this, which is upward fo focused, I think mm -hmm. it also should be horizontally focused. Now that I've got this reset, how can I be better with my neighbors? Um, how can I be better with uh, people with whom I've had somewhat uh, tense relationship? Um, mm. How do I start talking to the people I swore I would never speak to again? Um, mm. how, how, do I engage, how do I engage in human reconciliation if the cross means the divine human reconciliation, what's my responsibility here? And I don't mm. see as much of that as I would like to see. Mm. Well said, Tim. You have anything to add, my friend? Not, not a fraction of a penny. This was wonderful. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just kind of sitting and soaking it up. I was trying to think of what to even title this episode because there's been so many good. Is it like? I know, right? Uh, Pantsuits predate Jesus. I don't know. You just um, Michael, Matthew in the missionary it's, position. It's Michael and AJ have a conversation. I mean, it's basically yeah. so good. No, AJ, you you are about the perfect podcast interview. Oh, you are sweet. Yeah. so much personality, Absolutely. so much content. 
Um, you guys are fun to talk with, so this makes it better. And, and it's nice to be able to see you. This is the benefit of like Zoom and Skype as opposed to the old oh, yeah, way of doing it where, where you're talking to a computer screen, but there's a face oh, there. totally. No, I just, um, but but I really do enjoy your work. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm, I, I really do. Yeah, because if, you're a, if stuff... you're a liar, you will go into the outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Be careful. Absolutely. AJ, who is your uh, who is your husband's baseball team? Uh, Jay was born across the street from Yankee Stadium, and he imprinted. Um, and I was raised a Red Sox fan. And it's one o'clock. And oh, wow. And the Red Sox fan. Um, so this whole baseball thing is like the major, other than we had a fight about Hegel once, this is the major tension. In the yeah. Um, and now that there's no spring training, we don't know what to argue about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. I'd I love, love to be it. a fly on that wall. Yeah. Oh, well, my sister bless you. Seriously. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk with you guys. Yeah. You've been wonderful. wonderful. I really appreciate okay. it. Thank Keep you. In touch. All right, AJ. Bye. Bye-bye. So that's AJ, ladies and gentlemen, not Dr. Levine, AJ, my new personal friend forever. And my <laughs> and, and and I want to secretly petition her to adopt me. Um, not so as, secret anymore. Not so secret anymore. <laughs> Bonnie, now. Bonnie, well done. What did you think when you were listening? She was so first of all, I agree. She was so witty and hilarious. And she oh. has a way of like making these like nerdy academic scholar jokes, but that are actually funny. <laughs> like you never get that. <laughs> Do you know no, what I mean? Yeah. No. So she was awesome. And I loved the way she called stuff out um, that is hard for people to call out. So for her to say, if you like the one line that really got me, I was like, yes, was she said, if you um, if you have to make Jesus look good by making Judaism bad then you have a poor yeah. Christology. Yeah. And I thought that was so true of what you were discussing, but implications worldwide. If you have to make anybody, including yourself, look good because you have a poor view of making something else look bad, then that's a reflection on you and what you're doing. So anyway, she just, I just loved her. I loved her wisdom on all the stories. And you know what? She Did you know that she writes children's books? No. So we have one called Who's Counting? And it goes through the parable of the lost coins. Yep, yep. Prodigal son. Yep. And the lost, lost sheep. sheep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so after the interview, I went back on and I ordered um, one of her books that I hadn't read. And then I ordered three more children's books that she has. <laughs> after awesome. I listened because she's so she great. Of course she does. Yeah. Of course, yeah. She, of course she writes children's books. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she was amazing. Yeah. What? Uh, Tim... Obviously, you were gracious in allowing me to geek out a bunch. Um, what did you come away with from that um, from that episode? Anything tangible? Uh, I'm, I think I'm still like in the in the processing field because we just did this for us. This was yesterday, um, and I and I I think we talked afterwards. I was like, man, the one thing I'd like to do the most right now is to be in the same town and step out on a porch and have a beer and then just kind of discuss <clears throat> that would be the perfect podcast format is to have a great guest and then to still walk outside and be like digest it yeah in real time the other like the three of us were just able to sit down and have have a beer or something and just be like okay what and then how <laughs> yeah. and then when and why and 
I'm even just looking out at my trees right now. I'm like, it would be such a great thing to be able to sit out, sit down and do that. But I've really appreciated, I think I said to Mike afterwards, like I, I know that I am fairly ignorant to, um, so much of so much of Jewish history and then that's just a lot of the context of the Old Testament and in therefore a lot of the context of the faith that I have mm. and so the rabbi um, from last week and then AJ yesterday are just like I'm I feel like way more hungry for it so if anything it's been very inspiring like I've been really inspired to um, kind of go digging for some more like just context and history for this 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 faith like this mm-hmm. this adopted lineage that um that we're a part of now i i, I love it i'm I, I love how much she said the one of her favorite things in studying the new testament is getting and you guys can correct me how she said this the jewish context that gets left out of the old testament like there's this context and kind of like nuggets that come up in the new testament that is missing in the old testament so she feels like it fills in some of the blanks of is that how she said it? Yeah. I think that's what I remember her saying too, but yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really interesting. I like the congruency. I like it because I think we we joked about this on the rabbi episode that growing up, you're kind of just handed the New Testament when you go to yeah. youth rallies and that kind of stuff. They're like, here you go. This is all that really matters. Mm-hmm. And I know they have reasons for that, but it's like I, w- I at least was kind of raised in the uh, – culture where we focused on um the new testament and the gospels and uh and then just kind of only had those felt board uh fill in the blanks of the old testament right like yeah. they, remember the felt boards they'd throw the yeah you guys remember felt boards yes flannelographs oh, yeah. <laughs> flannel i called them flannelographs that's what i called them too yeah well that sounds like way more super scientific fancy. yeah <laughs> yeah no, I agree. And like one of the things with that, I think, Tim, that she brought up and you guys can tell me, I think probably people have different differing opinions on this. But I appreciate when she was discussing how she's like the stories I heard were stories I heard in the synagogue. But what mm-hmm. she discussed was that as a child, her dad would often like refer to Midrash, which is uh, this sort of commentary on the texts that sort of filled in some of the blanks. And I think sometimes that can be so incredibly helpful. I mean, if anything, like Tim Shell, for example, is more midrash than it is anything else because it sort of fills in the blanks, fills up this backstory. And I was speaking with a rabbi friend, and she told me to get this book. It just came in the mail. It's called The Book of Legends. And she's like, what's funny is that in the Jewish culture, and she's a rabbi, and she's like, we use this alongside the Torah to supplement, and we believe that it, like, we don't hold it in the same regard. But we believe that like it supplements it in this way. So I don't know, just this idea of even the freedom of what they look at to inform the text instead of being afraid. Like, Erie, one thing I've always learned from you is you being like all truth is God's truth. And we see Paul do that. He like quotes somebody to inform what he's doing. But we definitely have lost some of that. And I think sometimes we're afraid of that in the Christian um, Christian culture. So I appreciated her um, spelling that out so clearly. Oh, I couldn't agree more, Bonnie. There, there is, I, I never cease to be inspired when I hang around passionate Jewish people that are passionate about the religious side of Judaism, not just the cultural side of Judaism. 
And um, she, I, I'm just always inspired. And I always have this voice kind of in the back of my head. And when we were in Israel, we talked to our guide about how often pe people try to convert. The Jewish guide, you know, who come from evangelical oh, churches. so funny. And, and, I, and I was sitting there and, and I could just hear somebody going, when are you going to ask her about, you know, why do, doesn't she accept Jesus as Lord? And, and, um, and all of those things. And, and so I was just reminded of, you know, how much I enjoy something we decided early on, which was just to let people be, bring their best because her, her stuff is so, um, even if you don't agree with it, 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 it just reminds you that the, 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 it, the stories are far more colorful mm -hmm. than what the flannel graph picks up, you know, and what the, what the, the evangelical subculture kind of gives permission to. So I have benefited greatly from Jewish scholarship. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and I love that she was clear, non-Messianic Jewish scholarship. Yeah. Um, and uh, the book she wrote on the New Testament is super interesting, you know, mm -hmm. that she edited with, with this other guy. But it falls exactly along those lines that here, is, here, here are some non-Messianic Jewish folks reflecting on the words of the New Testament saying, man, this is totally Jewish, guys. I mean, how can you not be inspired by that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I really, I, I very much enjoyed it, too. And, and um and love the idea that yes, it doesn't have to be Christian to be true. Yeah. Well, and she, I was so like, oh yeah, logically that makes sense, but that hasn't sunk in till now when she was talking, like I, I love, I also loved like the way she talked about Jesus. She's like, you know, and he comes along and sings kind of, don't worry, be happy because she has this way <laughs> of like describing him where it's like you and I might say that and then be like, should I, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> um, <laughs> But she's like, but that's not even what's happening. She's like, he's when she was talking about like, um, don't commit adultery, don't even lust. She's like, he's actually adding on. He's making it more rigorous and more this. So for me, that really made me think about how many times we do say like, oh, it's just about love or it's just about this. And then we make it uh, very watered down and we do mm -hmm. act like the Jewish religion is all about like every jot and tittle, this very mm -hmm. formulated have to do this, have to do that. And she's like. Jesus's call was actually like, hey, take this to another level. So I don't, that was just a flip mm. in my brain. I'll have to sit on for a while. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, especially on on um, how she talked about Torah. Mm -hmm. You know, the the sense we always get is it's burdensome. Yeah, it's awful. You know, it's Jesus came away, came to do away with all of these things. Yeah, and um, you know, the the relationship between Paul and his use of the word law. Mm -hmm. in the new testament is so complicated yeah and i have so many headaches but it was a refreshing take on like her her analogy between being an american citizen and, and following the laws mm -hmm. because yeah. you're an american citizen and well yeah of course we follow torah we're jewish yeah you know that, that it's an idea that that it is a, a not an onerous thing that comes externally but it's it's fundamental to who you are you know, um, in terms of your identity, I mean, like we, we all just know we don't steal each other's private property and that those that do get in trouble. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? No one, you know what I mean? It's not like this burdensome, like, oh, dang, I can't steal today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just interesting. Yeah, We have a weird view of it. Yes. And like how she said, too, is she was like, I really that was interesting when she talked about how she's like the afterlife isn't central. 
So like we're not right. motivated by this eternal reward or eternal damnation. And I and she's like because of that we interact differently with each other, and we also like interact differently with ourselves. Because like if it is only about reward, then you are following it for a reward, not because it's just who I am. So I thought that was fascinating that she said it in that way. Of right. Um, right. And then when she said, even Jewish mysticism, if you do it too much, mm -hmm. it's too inward. Mm. And it's not enough communal. It's not enough outward. And I was like, that made me laugh out loud because I was like, oh, my gosh, isn't that so the way of human nature? Like, OK, I'm going to be super pious. And then suddenly we turn that into being all about us as well, <laughs> like our own totally. spiritual journeys. Totally. So, yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is. And I don't know, you know, why this is so hard to um, understand in the in, in some evangelical circles. But you don't have to agree with everything someone says to agree with some of what they say. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, an inter nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Tim. This is an exercise, like having guests on and saying, "Hey, bring your best." Um, cause there, cause there are points that she was saying, obviously that, that a lot of evangelicals would disagree with or scholarship would question. Great. Um, you can hardly talk about this stuff without finding somebody who disagrees. Mm -hmm. The bigger picture is, can you learn from people who see the world differently than you? Mm -hmm. And our answer always, of course, is yes. But in this instance, it's so fascinating because we share what unites us is bigger than what divides us. Now, I don't mean more important because, you know, obviously if, if Jesus is Lord, that's a big deal. But I just mean, think about how the, the how big the Old Testament is, the Hebrew scriptures versus how small the New Testament is, mm -hmm. right? And you look at, and you look at, we have these shared scriptures um, that, that unite us in some very, very profound ways. And personally, my relationship and study of Jesus totally changed when I realized he was Jewish. I, and I know that sounds so simplistic, but it was like a second conversion for me mm -hmm. yeah. to go, oh, 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 he's not, he's not a Christian. He <laughs> yeah. was a Jew talking to Jews. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, and I know it sounds so silly, but it was such a revolutionary idea. Yeah. At the no, time. For sure. you know? What were we joking yesterday that uh, you just forget that? aspect that he was jewish because you think that he looks like obi-wan kenobi <laughs> totally yes that's a, that's a star wars reference bonnie yeah i just can't get there <laughs> <laughs> we also found out i mean i know i know i'm doing a lot of therapeutic work but I, i'm gonna say i think bonnie has some issues too you know what because we also the amount of professional people i see in a month is large <laughs> so it's just that i don't talk about star wars which by the way we were watching lego masters last night and it was a star wars episode and like my husband's oh, seen oh. oh it's so good my husband's seen all of them and stuff and i look at him and i'm i'm serious but this but this is a actually very this is full circle okay this is what happens when we only stick to our own worldview and viewpoints I turned to my husband and I said, why didn't they do a Harry Potter episode? Because Harry Potter is bigger than Star Wars. And he's mm, like, oof. that's not true in the world. That is true in your head. That's and fair. I was like, that's oh. not even true in this house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it made yeah. me realize like, 
Oh yeah, it's just because I don't know. And but um, it, that made me think of like, of course it did, because I can't leave well enough alone. But then I went on this brain spiral of like, that is true of any of this stuff, right? Like if you only read one thing, that's, that's right. how big it is. If you, but if we can expand a little, we don't have to agree with all of it. We don't even have to agree with any of it. No. But to be aware is like, oh, I see. Well, but I'm not gonna. My students that I'm yesterday still not gonna in watch class because my students are writing their final argumentative paper and we were workshopping through all the things. And I was like, listen, guys, you guys can write a paper on something you disagree with. You have the permission to do that. Yeah. And like, why would we do that? And I was like, well, um, you, you still have to argue it. You still have to argue it well, first of all. But secondly, like you can learn a ton about what you believe by under, like by more fully understanding what it is that you oppose and yeah. why. Because so many of us just oppose things on face value for no other reason. And, you know, you lose it quickly. And so they're like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, yeah, you can play with it. And you may find also that it changes your mind on something, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish I had you as an English professor. I mean, first of all, you look the part like nobody's business. And then secondly, I mean, just how cool. What, are they, what do they call you? Do they call you Tim? Do they call you the staff man? Do they call, call you me Stafford. Stafford? I, would, I think if I were you, yeah. I'd make him call me Dr. T. I'm not a doctor, though. I still would do it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They don't know. Yeah. What do they know? Wasn't there some weird movie, though, with Richard Gere where he was Dr. T, but he's like a gynecologist? Oh my God. Just, that'd make me uncomfortable for the entire time. <laughs> I didn't know that. If, if it has Richard Gere, I'm not interested. It's just oh, not you're not way. a Gere fan, huh? Well, but back to Bonnie. See, this isn't about... <laughs> Richard Gere, this is about Bonnie's hatred of Scooby-Doo. I hate That's what I was trying to get to, is not only Star Wars, <laughs> I'm going to say I hated Star Wars. I don't know enough about Star Wars to say yes or no. Um, I am inherently skeptical of anything that's super popular. So there's that. Right. Um, if Star Wars could take a bit of a nosedive, I might get into it. But I don't, well, I don't foresee that happening. Arguably, it has in the last few years. It has nose. It, it's nose dove. It's nose dived. It's fallen nose off. <laughs> but yeah. I know a lot about Scooby Doo, and I hate it. <laughs> but are you, are you sure it's the original? Yeah. Like the one in the seventies. Yes. Early eighties. Yes. Yeah. Not with not without Scrappy because he ruins it. Was Fred wearing an ascot? That's really the. Uh, yes, the that's the test, factor. dude. I mean, I've blocked it out a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so I, I think one theme um, out of this that, that is so important um, is the ability to listen, be curious, ask questions, sift and sort, right? We, I mean, we've just been all about this. And so in an interview like that, I'm just simply in awe of how big her brain is, how quick her mind works, how fun and personable, how smart. And this is one of those episodes I'll, I'll literally have to go back and take notes on. Yeah. You yeah, know, and do, awesome. and do research. So. But look her up uh, on Amazon and buy her books. And her kid books are really great. The County. Yeah, we'll link them. Well, especially, though, they do a really good job of putting Jesus in a Jewish uh context which is something i didn't learn as a kid so how great if we yeah. could start our kids off with that preach <laughs> preach preach so. final words timothy no i i have some big questions but i think that i will save them for another time 
Ooh, cliffhanger. Oh, but I think wow. they kind of link to our next uh, our next guest as well. It's a it's a congruent question. Ooh. Okay. Wow. Look at this. Congruent questions, <laughs> says the English teacher. Exactly. All right. Well, brothers and sisters, thank you, Bonnie. Thank you so much. Yes. For reaching out to AJ. What a great, what a great conversation. That Bonnie, was. you're doing so well getting guests. You should try to get Jesus. Dun, dun, dun. True. <laughs> see, if he's, see if he's available for a book signing. Well, he's not this weekend. <laughs> he's got a big wow. weekend ahead. He's, he's got a big weekend. <laughs> Is he, though? I mean, isn't he just reclining at the right hand of the Father at this point? Just like, that man, that, that weekend sucked. I think but there's look probably at us. a Q&A happening. But look at us now. And he's like, all right, whatever <laughs> questions gonna, you have. He's going to zoom in from heaven. <laughs> he might. Hey, well, everybody, Tim, how's, my, how's my connection? Let me tell you, Tim, if you, keep, if you keep growing the way you're growing, you could pass your sweet blue eyes, Caucasian I'm some, skin. I'm getting some good Obi-Wan. Obi yeah, Obi yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Jesus had curly hair. <laughs> yeah. Bonnie, there's a pic from like the second early episode. This character Obi Wan Kenobi had long hair and a beard, <laughs> very white. It's Ewan McGregor. But there's been so many memes going around about because he he has a portrait that looks like <clears throat> um, those like 80s or I guess 70s Jesus portraits, the blonde mm. hair. Like, oh you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus that everybody had on their walls. Yeah, and so people had memes going around that their grandmas had this picture of Obi Wan Kenobi, cause it was actually Ewan McGregor on the wall. Oh. She thought it was Jesus. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's on that funny. note. It all as it, it is all Easter. Comes, it all comes together. <laughs> all right, brothers and sisters. Well, thank you for tuning in, and uh, may God bless you and keep you. Boom. That's all I'm going to get. That's all I'm doing. Just that first line. <laughs>